Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. What's up, Open Floor? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina of Sports Illustrated. Michael, I woke up and the first thing I saw on Twitter was like 62 different people upset about your all-star pick, so I'm not going to put you through that <laughs> ringer twice uh, in, in one morning. We're going to go ahead and have our big all-star reserve selection show later this week. We've got a bunch to talk about. Frankly, kind of a lot of bad news for some of these teams around the league right now, Michael. Uh, we probably should start in Los Angeles with the Anthony Davis Achilles injury uh, and then go from there to talk about, well, 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 that regional sports franchise, the Boston Celtics, falling on some very, very hard times with a loss to the Washington Wizards this week. And when you do lose to the Wizards, you have to look in the mirror. That's just one of those uh, NBA truisms that uh, every team has to follow, Michael. But let's start in L.A. Uh, Anthony Davis re-aggravated, I guess what they're calling an Achilles strain. We're waiting for more details at this point uh, about the severity, how long it might hold him out and everything else. But it was a scary scene on Sunday night, him limping off the court during a game against the Denver Nuggets. Denver went on to win that game uh, you know, without Anthony Davis's presence. I do think the Lakers were a little bit shook there trying to uh, you know, regain themselves, re- recover after Davis's exit. Uh, Michael, is it fair to say that this is the first real test for the Los Angeles Lakers during their title defense? I just feel like they've been on cruise control since December. This has got to shake them up a little bit, right? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, he is or has the potential to be the best player in the world. And so I was with you um, just kind of like, I, I guess like I know he played against Memphis after sitting 
both of those overtime games against the uh, the Thunder. But I was just a little, like, still a little, I guess, like, a little weirded out that he played in this game. Like, I, I know that there was a day off between that game and the Memphis win where he played 35 minutes. But just, like, the Achilles in general, I'm not a doctor, but that's just something I would be very, very, very cautious about, um, especially for this player, you know, AD, who signs the five-year max and then publicly cites like concern about his health for one of the reasons why he wanted that security, that long-term financial security. So like who I just don't understand why the Lakers have been so committed to this regular season and, you know, developing chemistry is very important with all the new pieces they have, but that doesn't really seem to be an issue for them. So like let AD rest, let LeBron rest and it'll all be okay. (laughs) It's like basically my take here. Yeah, so the, the Lakers' version of events essentially was that you know Anthony Davis had been bothered by soreness with that Achilles for a number of days, like you mentioned. It did sideline him for two games, and yet the day of the game on Sunday, he essentially felt fine, or you know, for the first time in a few days, he didn't feel the soreness, and so that's what kind of allowed him to get cleared um, and allowed him to feel comfortable going back onto the court. To have an immediate reaggravation, it does kind of lead to questions about okay, did they rush him back? Did they take enough time? I think I'm kind of with you in this situation, like just be cautious, take an extra game, take an extra week. You know, I'm not going to say take an extra month, right? Because they are going to be in a playoff chase at some point, but Mm -hmm. um, certainly err on the side of caution. It's tricky because LeBron James is so, uh, you know, kind of in Terminator mode right now. He just never misses any games whatsoever. I do think that uh, Anthony Davis feels some level of peer pressure to kind of keep up. You know, you go back to last year's playoffs and he was hobbling around on ankles here and there, but he he always wound up finding a way to fight through it. I think that was a real point of pride for him because earlier in his career, there'd be injuries that would sideline him and he kind of got knocked as a guy who would leave early and not come back. And so, you know, I think that was a you know part of his development, I suppose, or his reputation that he really likes. And so, you know, I think part of it maybe is he wants to look tough. He wants to get out there and, and help the team, of course, as, I, as they're in the playoff chase, like I mentioned. But uh, I'm with you. I think that Davis should have had more time off before he came back. I think they should be super duper cautious here going forward and, uh, you know, just get him sidelined. You know, the one benefit for a player like Kevin Durant, who was coming off this Achilles injury, is he's actually missed quite a bit of time this year uh, because of the contact tracing, right? He's had two full weeks off, basically, at various points, and and now he's got a slight hamstring injury, so he's going to be missing more time. I'm not saying target Anthony Davis' workload around Kevin Durant's workload, right? But I just think that uh, that gap should be narrower than it has been, and, and they should treat him with kid gloves. And by the way, same deal for LeBron. Uh, he's playing a team high minutes. He hasn't missed a single game all season long. I would scale that back a little bit, especially during Davis's absence. I think the temptation for LeBron is to kind of put the, the team on his shoulders here in the short term. I don't know if that's good either. I think you want to play for the long haul here. You know, I went back to look at the playoffs, Michael. The Lakers not only had great top-end talent, right? They had great chemistry as well. They had seven of their rotation players play all 21 playoff games, not even miss a game. And they had other guys in, in Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee who just didn't play for situational reasons, right? So all of their main guys basically enjoyed perfect health and availability in last year's playoff run. And I think when you're looking ahead to this year's playoff run, it's definitely going to be difficult. If they have to go through the Clippers or potentially the Clippers and the Jazz 
and the Nets in the finals, that's going to be a more difficult run than what they experienced in the bubble. And I think that's just one more reason why they should be playing this thing very conservatively from a health standpoint. Yeah, I mean, they had a ton of luck health-related last year. The bubble was a war of attrition, as we've talked about during uh, last year's postseason. And that was one of the reasons why the Lakers won the championship. And they haven't really had any serious issues related to COVID, um, fortunate for them. And I, I guess I just like, AD is, it's weird because, you know, the Lakers would push back on a lot of what we're saying right now and say, hey, we're only playing him 33, 32 minutes a night. He's yeah. missed five games already. Michael, they would also say, hey, we don't even try in the first three quarters of most exactly. games. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, they play this really slow pace, particularly in the fourth quarter. And so, uh, like, you know, he's 27 years old, and it's it's just really interesting to me because we anticipated, I think, a little bit of a decline in his statistics this season because it's just the regular season, and we're seeing that. Um, pretty markedly across the board. I mean, he's just, he's not as effective all around as he was. He's still an incredible player and will make the all star team. But like, this guy is so important, as we saw during the bubble, where he just took, I mean, he, in my opinion, he was the best player in the bubble. He was better than LeBron for long stretches and was so critical and so valuable for them on both ends of the floor especially in the finals. I mean, LeBron was tremendous, but what really stands out to me is when they just put AD on Jimmy Butler because LeBron wasn't really having that matchup anymore. AD is, he's like, he we, we kind of, uh, I guess, like, label him as the number two on this team, but he's really, like, a generational talent in his own right, of course, and so we shouldn't lose sight of that. But real quick, talking about LeBron, who I think is just as interesting, if not more interesting, in terms of his his workload here... Like without AD, you would assume that he would have even more responsibilities and even more of a burden on himself on both ends of the floor. And it's like this guy is at the end of the day, he is a human being. And just two years ago, he missed a month because he partially tore his groin on Christmas. And so, like, that could easily happen again. And an injury like that for a 36-year-old could be absolutely devastating, especially when you look at, as you, you mentioned, like, going through a gauntlet that includes this Utah Jazz team that is just, like, ravaging the entire NBA and a Clippers team that they fortunately uh, missed out on in the bubble. And I don't think that they're going to be so lucky this season. So I just think health is just, it's it's everything for the Los Angeles Lakers. And playing LeBron, like I was so surprised to see his minute load in that double overtime win against the Detroit Pistons. And then, you know, playing 40 plus minutes against the Thunder and like getting guarded by Lou Dort, which is just no fun at all. If you watch the, any of those games, like having trying to score on Lou Dort is like probably the most, like, you know, a quick aside, like we were talking about all-star, like fake all-star events, like just have all-stars go one-on-one -on -one against Lou Dort and see how many, like who has like the most points on 10 plays or something like that. Like it's a, uh, that was not fun. And so I just don't understand why they're doing that and running him through the ringer like this. I would be way more cautious with both those guys if I was the Lakers. So this is like the Lou Dort happy hands, happy feet uh, showcase. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what are yes. we calling this thing? I mean, that guy loves moving his limbs. He's very, very great at it. Hey, here's an aside for you about the Oklahoma City Thunder. I'm not sure anybody else has put this out there yet. 
Sam Presti drove himself from Oklahoma City to Disney World, and he has gone through an extended quarantine at Disney World so he can be in person to scout the G League bubble games, Michael. Is that the most dedication that any NBA executive has ever pulled off in the history of the league? Wait, is that true? 100% true. Facts only. (laughs) That is... That's intense. I'm not even watching those games on television. So uh, this is how you <laughs> find the him. Lou Dort when people are saying, you know, how do you where'd Lou Dort come from? How did the Thunder ever, you know, land him? How'd they get him on such a great contract? Sam Presti is out there grinding, Michael. That's like in a thousand something mile drive, and he was just in Disney World. You know what? Six months ago, I think there's a line mm-hmm. in my book, Michael. Um, Bubble Ball. You can pre-order on Amazon and all other major re- retailers right now about how I would never want to go back to Disney World under any circumstances unless it was for like the NBA Finals. And here's Sam Presti just rolling it back, Michael. It's unbelievable. Anyway, back on topic here with the Lakers. LeBron had a comment last night. He said, look, we're not going to expect anybody to like pick up the slack and, and do what AD does. He's a special player, and there's just no one who can do that. I mean, that's especially true in that Lakers front line, right? It's like you go to Marcus Saul and be like, hey, Mark, uh, you know, Anthony Davis is really good at flying across the paint for like, you know, skyscraping block shots. Do you want to try a couple of those? Or like, hey, Montrez Harrell, like, Anthony Davis has had a lot of success, you know, standing up big men like Jokic and really frustrating them with his activity and being able to hold his own, uh, you know, with the interior defense strength. Uh, would you mind trying to do that? Or, hey, Kyle Kuzma, I know you've been playing a lot harder on defense this year. You want to try to go out there and give us your best AD impression? Like, how's that going for them? You know what I mean? No, 100%. And another thing that we should mention is that when one of these guys is out, either AD or LeBron, like, there will be parts of the game where AD or LeBron is sitting. So you're going to have lineups that have neither guy on the floor. And the offensive numbers for those units is just, like, all-time atrocious like it's I mean the the names of the players in the groups are is you know it's not the greatest um you know I think that Harrell and Schroeder and uh Kuzma and Taylorhorn Tucker who's like basically going to the Hall of Fame you know there's some talented players on this team for sure but it just it the drop-off is humongous when those two AD and LeBron are not in the game so I'm sure that that's maybe something also that the Lakers are considering and they don't want to you know go through that and endure those minutes that much but like I just I can't really care that much about the regular season and I just I I have to think that they aren't either but I I just don't understand LeBron's minute allotment at all I can't really get over it it's so weird because he's 36 and he's the same age as Marcus Gasol like <laughs> if we look at Marcus Gasol and we're like this guy can give you 18 minutes, maybe on a good night. And then there's LeBron say eight who's minutes, carrying baby. the biggest load. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then there's LeBron who's like carrying one of the biggest loads in the league and a leading MVP candidate. It's just ridiculous. Michael, did I detect a sneak diss of THT in that whole little monologue you just gave us? No, that was sincere. I, oh, I am a huge fan. He's ridiculous. He's so, so you're, good. You're calling it now that he's going to the Hall of Fame? Yeah. No. Yeah. Mark me down. That's 100% an opinion of mine. Just keep in mind, Michael, he'd be the fourth best player on the Boston Celtics, all right? So none none of this halfway sarcasm from you. Um, I do think he's an important player to watch during this time off. Uh, There's going to be a lot more offensive opportunities, too. my, My mind went first to the defense just because Anthony Davis covers up guys' flaws so well, whether it is playing with Gasol, whether it's playing with Harrell. 
uh, whether it's playing with Kuzma or LeBron. I mean, I think he's always back there just kind of orchestrating um, and protecting the basket. They're going to miss that. You know, when, when Davis wasn't on the court for those two overtime games against the Thunder and, and Lou Dort, who you're describing, I mean, there was a lot of put your head down, go to the basket and test the Lakers big men. And so I think that's going to be a, you know, a, a major test here without Anthony Davis for the Lakers. How can they kind of get by and do their best to protect the paint. But I also think offensively, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for other guys to get numbers, you know, and you're seeing sacrifices from a lot of these players because of the Lakers depth. So Kuzma should have a a larger role. I definitely think Schroeder can do more offensively and he should be able to kind of pick up some of the slack, especially in those minutes when LeBron is off the court that you're describing. And then of course, they're going to want to see what else THT can do. Can he expand his role as well? But all those guys' lives are going to be more difficult without having Anthony Davis on the floor. You know, he's not a shooter like a Steph Curry where he's got all this gravity, but when he's on the court, he attracts an awful lot of attention no matter where he goes, and he's often out on the on the perimeter uh, opening up driving lanes and, and helping his teammates that way too. So they're going to look a lot different. You know, Frank Vogel was really harping on this idea of, We've got to get our three-point shooting back on track. It hasn't quite been where they've wanted it. Um, I do think that's a key factor for them as well because that helps lessen LeBron's load. If you know if it's a lot of driving kick stuff and, and somebody like KCP is getting hot and just you know giving them a little bit more of a cushion on offense. But uh, I do think to me, you know, long story short, the first two months of the Lakers season basically didn't matter. Lakers season kind of starts with this injury and it hopefully for them it's a short-term thing and they can kind of just keep going with their momentum but if not I think they're going to get tested really for the first time uh, since last year's regular season because they rolled through the bubble pretty smoothly too I saw just shades of Lakers panic there uh, on Sunday night for the first time in a long time and it was kind of a reminder that look no team's invincible and certainly we would not put this Lakers group you know, on the same level as a Golden State Warriors 2017 type team. And and uh, they, they've got some vulnerabilities. This Western Conference chase is really interesting, Michael. It's shaping up to be the Utah Jazz, the Lakers, and the Clippers. I think part of the explanation for LeBron's minutes that you're describing is that there is a real value in getting that one seed. You don't want to have to play both those teams, do you? And I think for the Utah Jazz, they should just continue to try to never lose another game, and they might succeed. I think they're 18 for 19 right now. Um, Because if they get the one seed, letting the, the Lakers and Clippers play each other on the other side of the bracket... It's great for them from a matchup uh, perspective because I think they really struggle to match up with both those teams because of the uh, the big time perimeter firepower, you know, the playmaking wings, and and that's probably the Utah's, you know, kryptonite if there is one. So to only have to get through one of those teams and to play them after they've played each other, when presumably they'll be fatigued or at least have played a long series, uh, they have a lot of motivation to keep that one seed, and and this could be a situation that actually helps them, don't you think? Maybe. I, you know, I look at the bottom of the Western standings for the playoffs, and if you are the one seed, like, your reward is going to be, like, the Mavericks or the Warriors or the Nuggets. Like, it's, it, it, it could be... So you're be, saying don't look, don't look ahead is what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, there's a lot of basketball left to be played. Uh, I, I, you know, I think it's a little too early to worry about standings, Um I, I see where your head's at, though, with, you know, you don't want to play, obviously, both those teams, assuming that they're still just as effective as they've looked over the past few weeks. I, I mean, Utah is, do you, side question, do you, like, are you on with Utah as a legitimate title contender yet? Or are you still like, I don't really care because of X, Y, and Z? 
No, I think like the perfect way for a season with no fans in attendance to play out is that Utah storms through the playoffs, wins the whole thing, and everybody's just like, <laughs> what the heck just happened the last six months? I think it's absolutely a possibility. They're, like If I was doing the power rankings of teams right now, who's playing the best, they're one by a mile. Yeah. Um, and I and I think you know they're not my number one title contender. I would still give the Lakers that you know benefit of the doubt when they're at full strength, but they've been absolutely ridiculous, and they've been this way for a while. I mean, I feel like I wrote my newsletter column about how great their ball movement was, and how Donovan Mitchell was buying in, and how Shaq was completely wrong. Like I feel like I wrote that like a month and a half ago, and they were rolling back then. It was probably more like three weeks ago, but they have not stopped rolling since. And it's amazing. Um, they are really, really fun to watch. Um, they're they're really getting the most out of their entire group. It's one of those stretches, though. You just hope they don't peak too early. You just want to see them be able to sustain this for the entire season because there's a real difference between being like that 2015 Hawks team that flamed out a little bit when they got to the playoffs, right, and, and never quite lived up to their full expectations versus the 2014 Spurs where it was like, they, they play with that exact same style of ball movement that Utah's getting all this credit for. And, you mm-hmm. know, five offensive threats simultaneously. Everybody's locked in together defensively. They all just love spending time with each other. They're completely locked in. I want to see, you know, the the Jazz, you know, in that latter category. I don't want to, them to be one of these teams that becomes like a cautionary tale about not getting excited too early because those situations suck, you know. It's like, come on. We got to give these teams credit. They're awesome when they're awesome. And, you know, for them to not really get the payoff at the end is always kind of a letdown. So I'm hoping that we get some just titanic playoff matchups and the Jazz are figuring uh, strongly in those. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to sidetrack too much of this pod because you and I, we're very organized. We have an outline. We stick to specific questions. No, Michael, I've never seen you you take more digressions than than this episode. I'm just going to let the open floor globe know why. We have a long, what's wrong with the Celtics? Can we bury the Celtics? (laughs) Are they done this season segment? And you know what you're doing, Michael? You're filibustering. That's exactly what you're doing. And I'm a Washington Post reporter. I'm calling you out. I see what you're doing. You're treating this podcast like the Senate floor. No, that's uh, I'm guilty, uh, 100%. Um, But I do want to give credit for, like, I don't know if you watched the Jazz-Bucks game a few days ago, but, like, the Jazz were just at, like in a completely different class than the Bucks, and the Bucks are this team that we've kind of held up as a, a legitimate title contender, which I think they are, and they didn't have Drew Holiday in that particular contest. But like one of the more interesting things about Utah that I think is overlooked is the fact that they can, in a matchup against the Lakers, get go like really big. And play Gobert and Favors together, which is a unit that used to be a staple of their rotation. They they basically don't do it anymore at all. But they went to it against the Bucks primarily to slow Giannis down. It was very effective, and I think that that is like I like they're just it's isn't this isn't like a smoke and mirrors team. Like this is they're not just like living off the three point line and luck either. Like they are they're just a really good uh, versatile basketball team. So I. I'm very high on them as a legitimate contender. I I still think the Clippers are actually my favorite over anybody else, but um, the Jazz are right there for sure. The three best teams right now are in the Western Conference to me. Uh, Your point a long time ago about the value of continuity and why are some teams trying to keep lineups together when everybody else is rotating their players constantly has, you know, showed off 
with the Jazz more than almost any other skill, I think. When you're looking at their rotation, how many of those guys were already on the team last year? And then the one guy they do go out in free agency and, and get is Favors, who's been there yeah. previously and knows exactly how they want to play, knows exactly how he fits with other people. Coaching staff has had continuity there. It's just been rock solid and stable. And I was talking to some people last week just about how, you know, around the league, about how difficult this season is with the constant testing and the contact tracing and everything else. And they're saying like winning 18 out of 19 games in a regular season, in a normal season, would be impressive. They're saying like give Utah like three or four extra gold stars for doing it in this particular year because everything is more challenging this year, right? That's why you're seeing so many teams around 500 because maybe you do build a little bit of momentum for a week. One guy goes out for contact tracing, it throws you off completely. And uh, the Jazz have done a really nice job, whether it's uh, you know Mitchell or Conley, if they miss time here and there, it doesn't really seem to slow them down. It doesn't knock them completely off course. I think it's a credit to their culture and also just the fact that a lot of those guys have been there. They have a lot of shared institutional knowledge, and that still counts for something. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret, like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The wait is over. The Shy is back on Paramount Plus and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary in Indulges your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. All right, Michael, I can't uh, let you delay this any longer, to be honest. We've got to dig in, all right? And this is not a case of me just making fun of you and trying to, like, kick you when you're down because, boy, you guys are, quote-unquote, down bad right now there in Boston, all right? We got an email from Micah. 
Micah's a longtime listener. He's also a diehard Celtics fan. Michael, just to prove his credentials, I'm going to let you know, back during the offseason, you know, he was giving me the full breakdowns of Tristan Thompson and, and why that was such an important move for the Celtics and, and how it was going to be a transformational piece for them. I, I'm laying it out a little bit thick, but this guy bleeds green is my point. All right. And I think he's actually too young to drink the green beer. So uh, we're going to stick with bleeds green. This was what he sent to me in a series of Instagram messages last night, Michael. Unprompted, he writes, We are not contenders. We are a cute story team that isn't even cute. The trade exception is worth way less than Gordon Hayward. We are going to trade for a fraud. Danny Ainge has been bad. So has uh, Brad Stevens. The Celtics are so miserable to watch. There are genuinely like three NBA players right now on this roster. And I'm not even mad at Jason Tatum because they're playing him like 40 minutes per game after he got COVID. Michael, I can promise you I've never in my life heard Micah talk like this about his beloved Boston Celtics. I saw some other prominent Celtics fans on social media completely freaking out over the weekend. Michael, where are you at? Have you are you have you finally conceded? that your Celtics are pretenders, not contenders. Hmm. I will say losing to the Pistons and then losing to the Wizards is not what you want as a basketball team that is trying to win the championship, that's for sure. Uh, I'm not going to deny that. Um, Seems I, like a fatal one, too. Like, after that it's, happens, it's, we just don't have to take you seriously anymore. It's it's ugly, for sure. I, I do think that, you know, I it, personally, like, it's too early to panic um, if you're the Celtics for a variety of reasons. Uh, I think that— So you're the guy in the uh, the burning house meme right now. It's all fine? It's a, I wouldn't say it's all fine. I would say that I can look around and— be semi confident in like them ripping off, you know, five in a row or something like that. Maybe not right now because of just the state of the team. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But like down the line, this team is they they play generally the right way. They uh, win healthy, which I think health is like a huge variable for this team that's really bitten them. Um, win healthy. They are uh, super versatile. They can play a lot of different ways with different lineups. They have some continuity at, at key positions. Um, but, I mean, you look at – I'll just, like, start with health as one of the big reasons well, why I think Well, yeah, re- real quick before you do that, you mentioned a five-game winning streak. So Boston's at 500 right now. I think with the five-game winning streak, they would basically lock up a playoff spot in the Easter Conference this year. I mean, it's so, <laughs> it's so pathetic out there. So I, I do think the one bit of good news for Boston – they have come back to earth at the same time that like a lot of the rest of the conference has all come back to earth, right? So if you were dealing with teams like Indiana, Toronto, Miami, all looking rock solid, and then you had the Philly and you know Milwaukee contingent and Brooklyn all above Boston, I think that's when the panic mode would start to set in, right? Because you're starting to look around and saying, wait a minute, we might be locked in here as a seven seed, like, you know, assuming things turn back around or we're going to really have to make a lot of... Uh, progress down the stretch of the season to kind of get back to where they expected. And because everybody else has played poorly too, it does let Boston off the hook just a little bit. And a big factor is what you're mentioning with health. I mean, not only has Boston faced it, but Miami has obviously faced it and other teams have as well. So who do you point to as sort of the biggest absences uh, for Boston from a health standpoint? And why is it Marcus Smart? 
<laughs> no, I mean, real real quick to just piggyback off what you said, they are four games back in the loss column of the conference leading Sixers. They're two back of the Bucks. They're uh, one back in the loss column of the Nets. So, like, it's, you know, it's not like the house is on fire necessarily. But when I look at the the, the health, it's kind of like... No, I mean, the Eastern Conference, they showed up to work at like 10.45 a.m. this year. I mean, and they, they clock out at 3.30, man. It's just ridiculous. It's it's tough. It's been a tough season for everybody. Um, but, uh, like, you just look at the, the way this team had to start the season. You know, you're playing Tristan Thompson and Daniel Tice at like in your front court like right there you are going uphill that is not a a tandem to be effective in 2021 on either end of the floor and those lineups have been atrocious uh so you know you're saying together right uh Yes, when those yeah, okay. two have, have played together. Because I, um, I like Tice, and in theory, I kind of understood where they were going with Thompson, but I, yeah, I, I'm with you. I didn't necessarily think that they were going to be playing them together. <laughs> that was like, I thought it was more like a pick one, right? Right. So, you know, ideally you would have, have plugged in a wing to replace, uh, you know, Kemba missed the first however many games of the season. Ideally you want to plug in a wing. They're very thin. They obviously were not... They did not think that Aaron Neesmith was ready for that. Romeo Langford has been injured and not played uh, a minute this season. Um, so those lineups yeah, kind can, of... Can I just say, like, Boston's young wing, none of those guys can play, really. I mean, I, why are we keeping, okay. like, naming these she, guys? <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, they're just guys. He's like a month into his career. Come on. You're, you're being harsh. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, the, the I think heading into this season, you would say that the... Uh, the best five-man unit and the one that would close games for the Celtics would be Tatum, Brown, Smart, um, Walker, and Tice. And that unit has basically not been able to play this season because of injuries to Kemba, because of injuries to Marcus Smart most recently. And, you know, Tatum had coronavirus, and there have been uh, uh, health and safety protocols for the entire team earlier in January. So that's just been, you know, a lot of teams are dealing with a lot of stuff. That's one thing, not to mention Peyton Pritchard, who's like the fourth best player on the team, uh, nearly having a serious knee injury. Thank goodness he came back recently and has played pretty well, uh, hitting six threes against the Toronto Raptors in a must-win game. But, like, from there... You kind of well, like. L- let me chip in there real quick. I'm with okay. you. Boston has one awesome lineup, and it was the lineup that you named. That was a lineup that played really well in the playoffs uh, last year that got me so excited thinking, look, if we can just build the right pieces around these guys and keep Hayward as that extra piece, now they're going to have multiple different looks. They're really going to have the versatility needed you know, to match up with whoever they would come across in the Eastern Conference playoffs. That was the group, that five man group that you listed. That made me think these guys can win the East in 2021. So not only have they not had that group, but we've got questions within that group now too, right? I mean, where are you on Kemba? I I looked at Charlotte. I watched their game on Sunday night. Charlotte's got three point guards right now, all playing better than Kemba Walker simultaneously. They got Lamelo. They got uh, you know Devontae Graham, who's not in the you know having the world's greatest season, and even scary Terry Rozier is playing better than Kemba right now. It's been an absolute mess. Is it salvageable from Kemba's perspective? Uh, It hasn't been great for Kemba so far. You know, uh, I I think that you should expect. 
a bumpy ride with him this season. You know, he, he's coming off this really strange knee injury that they had no, they didn't really know how to alleviate pain from him for a very long time. And he's rehabbing and there's, you know, I, it, so I think that, you know, coming into the season where the, the schedule is so compressed, he's not going to even play back-to-backs throughout the entire regular season. That has been said by Brad Stevens, and that makes a lot of sense to me. So they're being super cautious with him. He's obviously on a max contract. He's an undersized point guard. Um, if he's shooting 35%, like, this team is going nowhere, like, straight up. That's just obvious. I don't. Well, like, that seems pretty likely. I don't know about likely. It's, you know, we're only, like, a dozen games into his season. Um, he has some of the burst in some games. There are possessions where he does look like the guy who just kind of wore down in the Heat series where he can't create, in the Eastern Conference Finals last year, he can't create separation on those mid-range step-backs, which are just like, that's his bread and butter. And so when he when you don't respect the step-back, then you're able to kind of play off of him a little bit more and he can't get to the basket. Uh, Adam, Simmel, Adam Himmelsbach of the Boston Globe wrote a really nice piece recently about how Kemba's shots are just getting blocked left and right at the rim which is also not a really great sign in terms of just where he's at physically. So, I, yeah, yeah I'm no, he, a little... he comes by that 35%, honestly. I'll say that uh, for sure. <laughs> okay. um, well, so here's my question. I mean, uh, when you're looking at do you trust him for a full postseason run, there's going to be some really tough individual matchups for a Kemba Walker, right? So even if he's coming back healthy, if he gets his body back into a better place, He's dealing with really tough point guards on the other end that he's going to have to defend. You, nothing you said even mentioned his defense, and I understand why. You know, we try to avoid discussing that at all costs because it's a pretty rough ride. Um, he feels well, like a weak link, man. He feels like a pretty major weak link if you're trying to be a championship con- contender this season. Even if he's healthy, he feels like a weak link. Uh, potentially, yes. I don't think he'll ever guard like like they will hide him like nobody's business in the playoffs. So he's going to guard DeAndre Jordan in the playoffs. <laughs> he is glued to Bruce Brown in the playoffs. Um, yeah, like, so it is, that's a concern for sure. And I think that, you know, it, it, assuming that Marcus Smart is 100% healthy, assuming that Tatum and Jalen are 100% healthy, I still am pretty high on Boston's ceiling. Um, and I want to see who they get with that trade exception. But for for right now, just talking about their struggles, like you look at, say, their shot profile, like they're not getting to the rim. They're not drawing fouls. Uh, they're not shooting threes, which is it's curious. That's the weird because, part. That's yeah, the weird it, part. Because like in it, last year's playoffs, they did struggle to get to the basket, especially in key moments. You remember I was kind of harping on, you know, why isn't Tatum getting downhill more late in games? And I was – you know, thinking that they were really turned into a jump shooting team by opposing defenses, and sometimes it burned them, sometimes it didn't. But if you're going to be a jump shooting team, you better shoot some jumpers, Michael. 100%. Um, And I think you can explain that just by, it's like Jalen and Tatum have to take a lot of really difficult shots, and they have to create for themselves so much and they can do that. They're, they're superstar offensive players, as they've proven, and I think both of them will make the All-Star game pretty easily. But when you look at the rest of the roster, like how many guys terrify you if they are left open? So 
Like zero. <laughs> no, I mean, there's nobody on the roster who's even coming. Who's not even making me afraid. You know, let alone right. terrify. Can I ask you on Tatum? So I, I know he's you know kind of like a family member to you and all this other <laughs> stuff. And you know, we're sitting here watching them drop some games against you know pretty rough teams. And Tatum loves to do the whole Kobe thing, you know, like how he was inspired by Kobe. And he mentions him a lot and, and talks about how he patterns his game after watch the detail video that Kobe did and, you know, all these different links to Kobe. I mean, is the piece missing for Tatum, this idea of I'm just going to take everything over when it's bad times and sorry, I'm going to get 45 tonight and we're probably going to win if I do that. Have we seen that version of Tatum enough? Because this is pretty dire straits right now. Like There needs to be someone to kind of step up, rally the troops, put people on his back. And I'm not really seeing Jason Tatum do that. It was an issue for me in the postseason, you know, down the stretch of some of those key playoff games. Yes, he had beautiful numbers and beautiful efficiency, but in the very key moments, a lot of times he wasn't the one making the decision. If we're calling him a superstar level guy like you just described, isn't that part of his job description here, Michael? Isn't some of this about, hey, we all look at Jason and he pulls us through these tough times? Because these post-game comments come out of the Washington game. I mean, Kemba looked like beside himself, right? Yeah, he looked not happy and, and frustrated. And I think all these guys are sick of losing. And I don't really view Jason Tatum as like the vocal leader of that locker room. I mean, last year, it, it was certainly guys like Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown. So if you're going to do it on the court and not, you know, do it with your mouth, I'm completely cool with that. Is it time for Tatum to kind of step up and just be that guy here, Michael? Hmm. Uh, so with Tatum, I'm not that concerned about his end of game production. Like there's this website, uh, pbpstats.com, which uh, categorizes uh, statistics based on leverage moments. So like uh, a high leverage moment would be uh, tied with uh, 10 seconds to go or something like that. Just like a, 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 a play that and a shot shots that impact winning versus a low leverage moment, which would be like anything in the first quarter. And in high leverage moments, Jason Tatum, I believe, has more points this season than everyone except De'Aaron Fox and Nikola Jokic. So I'm not I'm not like worried about his end of game performances so far. What I am concerned about, though, is this guy can get a pull-up three anytime he wants, and he is deadly with that shot. Like, the high release, the crazy footwork, he gets the separation. That's the most effective shot, basically, in basketball right now. He takes just about as many pull-up twos as he does pull-up threes. He's shooting a higher percentage on pull-up threes than pull-up twos. So... I don't, I, I don't get it, honestly. Um, oh, he should be attempting 10 threes a game. He takes seven. He should be attempting eight free throws a game. He takes 4.5. Like, his distribution is not what we would think of for, like, a modern premier playmaking wing. He just needs to kind of, like, cut the fat out like you're describing and get to more efficient stuff. When you're looking around at the number of injuries and absences they've had, what I'm saying is he's averaging 25.6 points right now. He should be averaging 30 points this season right? They mm. need that from him. Like Peyton Pritchard should not be bailing these guys out like twice a week, you know? <laughs> I love Peyton Pritchard coming out of the draft because he's from Oregon, but like, you know, come on, some of this falls on Tatum, doesn't it? No, it's, it's, I think the shot selection there is, is not great. And I, that needs to improve. As you said, you got to restrict um, the diet a little bit. You got to alter your shot selection 
the free throws are really just they're weird to me like when i watch tatum play i do feel like he attacks the basket a decent amount like what you want but sometimes he'll settle settle for these floaters and a lot of the times he's just forcing it because the defense is loaded up to stop him and he's just so frustrated with nobody guarding shimmy ojale and he'll just barrel into somebody and it's like i i you look at that and you're just like i this team needs more talent i mean that is where gordon hayward is missing that is where an a plus kemba walker is missing and so I, I I try to like be less harsh towards someone like Tatum and someone like Jalen because I think those are the the bright spots on this team. But like no, I get it. I mean, protect the golden goose. I know how you guys do it. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that we're getting a little bit of a market correction on his uh, reputation, right? I do think that oh, Jason geez. Tatum. No, he's the kind of guy like you're describing. He is going to look at his absolute best and have his highest impact when he's playing with other talented players. If you take away the other talented players and say, "Hey, go out there and put everybody on your shoulders and be a one-man army," that's not who he is. I actually happen to think that that's a strength. It's it's a character. Uh, it's a character attribute, right? Because he's willing to play within systems and willing to support his teammates and he's not trying to hijack things. But there are some moments in seasons when they're sort of slip or when you're having multiple guys out of the lineup or somebody like Smart goes down. And so everybody in that locker room is thinking, oh God, we're not going to be very good without Marcus Smart, uh, where Tatum needs to step up and be like, yeah, you know what? We're going to be fine. Don't worry. I'm getting 45 tonight. And we just haven't seen that version from him. Um, I would like to see it. And I, and I think that part of the free throw thing, there's a knack to kind of drawing contact, selling contact, and all that. And I do think that he probably is a little bit more of an attacking player than he gets credit for. I'm just not sure. Is he? He's almost too smooth to be a big-time contact drawer. Does that make sense? A little bit, maybe. I think he does shy away from contact sometimes. And... Like he doesn't like if he gets the reputation, you know, we talked about Paul George in the last episode, right? Like if he gets that reputation, his career ceiling just like drops pretty significantly, I think. Like I think he needs to get eight, nine, ten free throw attempts a game in his prime for him to be the player that so many think he can be. I still think that that is definitely possible, if not likely. But right now and in a situation like this to what you're saying, he should get there like He's 22 years old, which I think a lot of us forget about, but like he's played in so many big playoff games and it feels like he's been around forever. And so you just want this progress out of him. Uh, And at a time like right now where they're struggling, you get a little bit impatient with it. But like I'm not too, I'm not like too concerned generally about the Celtics because I'm so high on Tatum and because I'm so high on Jalen. But, you know, there's there's a lot to be to be worried about, I think. Yeah, well, look, I'm doing my very best to inspire Tatum to a 45-point performance this week. So when <laughs> it happens, Celtics fans, you know who to thank. All right, last question for you, Michael. If you could undo any of Danny Ainge's moves from the last two years, what would it be? Hmm... Because there's another golden goose for the Boston media. You know, the green beer drinking guys, they hate to criticize Danny. They love to hype up that uh, trade exception like Micah was mentioning and then, you know, turn back around and, you know, maybe you're just going to trade for a fraud like Micah's fearing. Uh, You know, you've had a lot of roster turnover, right? I mean, you lose uh, Kyrie. That's after the Isaiah situation. You get Kemba. You pay him the big money. You lose Gordon uh, without, you know, 
in a situation that you probably shouldn't have lost him in. You know, it just seems like ownership just didn't want to pay him what Charlotte wanted to pay him. Uh, you know, draft picks you could you could look back at. I know you love to focus on the amazing Jason Tatum trade and that great Jalen Brown pick. And, you know, that's yeah, uh, a- absolutely positives. I think Marcus Smart's contract, underrated positive um, mm. from Danny Ainge and his uh, organization. But they're not perfect. What would you undo? What's the 2020 hindsight move? Hmm. You know, I do think, you're going to laugh at me, I do think that Danny Ainge is... Uh, you know, one of the three best at his job in the league. And a lot of the criticism is is rough and I think a little unwarranted. But if I could change one thing, you know, the 2019 draft, there were a lot of reports that they were super high on Tyler Hero. And Tyler Hero gets selected by the Miami Heat one pick before they select Romeo Langford. Like, if they were that high on Tyler Hero, and I know that this front office is super smart in terms of the intel that they gather, and they have a good feeling about, you know, how other organizations are, like, what direction other organizations are leaning in their own thought process. They don't know everything, but they, they're, they're really smart like that. So if they had any feeling like Tyler Hero was going to get selected before the 15th pick in that draft or whatever it was, like trade up to get him <laughs> like, like you have all these other picks and you are like i think they they should have probably viewed themselves i think they they overachieved a little bit last year and maybe they didn't know that they were that close to winning a championship but um like maybe you should have traded up to get a tyler hero like trade two future protected firsts or something to a team that uh, is ahead of you. And I know that that's really difficult and tricky, but they did it for Kelly Olenek um, way back when. Uh, they didn't give up that much, but they did move up to get him because they liked him a lot um, in a draft when Giannis was still on the board, <laughs> for the record. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, but but yeah, so that's like the one thing when I look back at it, I'm like, you can't... Like, you, you think Romeo is done as a player. I'm not really there yet. Uh, but... Tyler Hero is a potential perennial all-star and just like a stone-cold shot maker um, in Miami already. And he would be just a perfect complimentary piece for Jalen and Tatum, if not a really effective third star. So that's that's like the big one that I'm looking at. And I'm like, I wish they had Tyler Hero on their team. I, I hear you. I mean, that would they, they just came up empty in that in that particular one. So yeah, I, that would um, that would be frustrating for sure. Let me ask you: How many teams right now in the NBA are more disappointing than Boston? I got to tell you, right now, this very moment, <laughs> wow. I I think Boston's the biggest disappointment in the NBA, Michael, because I actually don't think they overachieved last year. I think they were right on where they should have been. And if anything, I mean, there were a few moments they were not very far for making the finals, right? That Eastern Conference Finals was tense. You've got Adebayo's block. You've got his insane fourth quarter explosion. Um, You've got, you know, Boston finally, you know, struggling a little bit and coming apart at the seams with that, uh, you know, that post-game locker room brouhaha. But until that point, they had played absolutely awesome basketball, beat a really good Toronto team. I was ready to crown these guys. Brooklyn came through and completely took all of their thunder this year. And so I just do not see them as contenders whatsoever this season. And to go from a team I thought was going to win the East or, or be the leading candidate to win the East to go to a team that I just don't even view as a contender anymore, 
to me, that's the biggest disappointment there is because even a team like Dallas, I didn't think they were going to be like a legitimate A-list title contender this year. They've been a disappointment. I expected a level of regression from Miami, uh, and we've seen that this season. Um, and they're actually not that far behind Boston anymore. And most of the other teams that are outside of the playoff picture, you know, uh, looking in, I didn't think anything was going to happen for them. So I have well, Boston okay. as the biggest disappointment in the league. What about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned two of the teams that I would put in that category. Um, Dallas, a team that has uh, more losses than Boston and the same amount of wins. Um, and... Uh, Miami, for sure, I think, you know, and both those teams, we've talked about their COVID issues. Uh, Toronto Raptors are another team that I'll put in that that tier of disappointment. Uh, they just, you know, there were some personnel uh, moves in the front court that have not gone their way at all. And, you know, they were linked to Andre Drummond earlier today in a rumor that I don't even, I don't know if that's ever going to come to fruition, but it just shows kind of their bleakness at the center position. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think that they've been pretty disappointing. And then, like, honestly, look at, you know, the Denver Nuggets. The Denver Nuggets are really good, for sure, record-wise. And, you know, I look at their defense a little bit, uh, and I look at someone like Jamal Murray, who, like, overall I expected to be a little bit better than he's been this season. I think that that's... Well, come on, man. Available. Denver Nuggets, play, they play in a real conference. They're above 500. They got an MVP candidate. You can't say they're as disappointing as these fractured Boston Celtics who can't even get through their post-game media interviews without yelling anymore, Michael. <laughs> I mean, it's not Boston's fault that they play in the Eastern Conference. I mean, I look at the Celtics and you have Jalen Brown, uh, who will potentially be an all-star starter, uh, definitely going to make the team. I don't know how many people saw that. You have Jason Tatum, who statistically is uh, better than he was last year when he made an all-NBA team. So I look at those two, and I'm like, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty good. That's like a, a Those are pleasant surprises, in, in particular with Jalen. And then like we knew that Gordon wasn't going to be there. Uh, we knew that Kemba wasn't going to start the season and had a knee injury that was lingering from the bubble. So sometimes like expectations are a team's worst enemy. And I think that uh, where they've played so far, how they've played so far, is actually like okay based on everything that's happened to them. Like Peyton Pritchard has been really important and he's played really well. And that was a that was a knockout draft pick right there like he's clearly going to be on the team for the next 10 years as a key contributor that's huge uh so i i don't think that it's that that doom and gloom no i actually think that's a good slogan for the celtics expectations are our worst enemy i think that's a, a great one every year we get everybody gets their hopes up every year we get let down michael all right enough uh, kicking you guys while you're down there's still hope i'm with you but i do not see them I, I see their ceiling as kind of fourth in the Eastern Conference. If they get a favorable matchup with one of the teams above them, you know maybe they could make a playoff series interesting. But right now, it's it's been rough. I, I tend to agree with a lot of what Michael was saying during his vent session, and I appreciate him for sending that. Let's talk about these Brooklyn Nets because they absolutely worked the Golden State Warriors on Saturday night. Just ran them off the court. The offense looked awesome. Their defensive effort was absolutely up and locked in. Golden State, I mean, the disparity between perimeter talent between these two organizations was just not, it was just hard to even fathom. I mean, watching guys like Ubre Wiggins struggle with, you know, the all-star perimeter trio that Brooklyn's got going right now, 
And yet I looked around the internet, Michael, and I didn't feel like there was any excitement on Brooklyn's behalf, any hype on Brooklyn's behalf. I think a lot of people wanted them to lose that game uh, to the Golden State Warriors, right? Because it was kind of the showdown, KD's return. And when it didn't happen, it just kind of felt flat. And I'm wondering, are they doomed for, for, to have this kind of a reaction all year long? I think a lot of people are watching them. You know, they're, they're definitely getting mm. bigger ratings. People are intrigued by how they play. People love to make fun of their defense when it doesn't work right. But nobody gives them, quote unquote, their flowers, Michael. I think we need to give this team their flowers. They're clearly the Eastern Conference's best team to me right now. I I feel like you saying that is just like a peak backhanded compliment about the Eastern Conference. Because I, I know that you, you are not a fan of what the Eastern Conference has to offer. And the Brooklyn Nets right now are just such a flawed basketball team, in my opinion. And I think you you probably share a lot of those thoughts and those concerns. So, yeah, shout out to you for that backhanded compliment. Um, you know, I look at the Brooklyn Nets and I watch that game against the Warriors. And I just, I don't know how much you can take away from it. Like, offensively, Harden was just making passes like he was in a schoolyard and just, you know, like those pocket passes that are like behind the back or between the legs, like regularly. I'm telling you, he's got to start in the all-star game. The people who are trying to dock him and put him back to the bench, give me an absolute break. He's the best guard in the Eastern Conference, period. No, sorry, not going to happen. But, um, (laughs) but like, What's really interesting to me about this particular game, and I don't know if this was like a subconscious reason why not too many people were excited about the win, is that they were up against a team that just physically cannot exploit their weaknesses. And the Golden State Warriors, you know, they they start small. They have Draymond at the five. Uh, DeAndre Jordan was not active for that game for personal reasons. But even if he were active, I don't know if he would have played that much because like playing Kevin Durant at the five and getting away with it is obviously uh, Brooklyn's best lineup. So if you can do that and you don't suffer on the defensive end, then like have at it, like have yourself a day. So that's what they were able to do. And the offense was great. The defense was whatever, but like, I, I, I can't really take too much away from that one particular game just because of how wonky, the rotations were is that is that fair to say Uh, I mean I would give them more credit than you are for sure I mean first of all Golden State's not that good so that's important context like they're (laughs) they're up and down for sure I mean Brooklyn Uh should win that game even though they're on the road but both teams are up for that game everybody knows that's Katie's homecoming so let's see what they're capable of doing Brooklyn has been excellent they have a very strong record in these high profile games when they're on national TV when they've got their stars together they've been very very good and the defensive intensity was awesome. And you look at their role players. When we first uh, saw this team come together, I think you and I were highlighting players like a DeAndre Jordan and a Jeff Green who were benefiting from Harden's presence, right, with the passes. Mm-hmm. But in that game, I look at the shooters. I mean, those shooters are open all day long, and they've got plenty of room, and those guys can hit open shots. They're just really, really difficult to cover. And so yeah. when they went to that smaller lineup – with KD at the five, and it's just completely spaced out. Everybody's, you know, got it going to one degree or another. The offensive scoring balance was excellent, and I don't know exactly what team out there does match up well with that group. I mean, maybe the Clippers, 
you know, maybe the Lakers, when they go to AD at the five, would be the two teams that have the best shot to do it. But that's going to be a nightmare cover for everybody else in the league. And I just think that uh, people, they just say, oh, yeah, they've got the three stars. Their offense is guaranteed to be awesome. Well, let's dig in a little bit deeper and say, yeah, I mean, these guys are incredible. Can anyone really find ways to stop them? And and what are the, the skills and the... Um, the uh, physical attributes required to keep up with this group when they go to that lineup. And I just think it's a very, very, very short list of teams that have a chance to slow them down. Offensively, they are going to do what they're going to do. I mean, they have Joe Harris. They have uh, Landry Shamit, who's like an excess piece who they could flip probably if they wanted because he's such a good shooter, but they don't even really like need his shooting. Um and I think Bruce Brown, who, like, I wrote this in my notebook and meant to tweet it but didn't because I thought it was a little mean maybe, but, like, if the Brooklyn Nets had any fans whatsoever, yes. Bruce Brown would, Bruce Brown's jersey would be a top 10 seller, straight up. I'm sorry. Like, he is there, Alex Caruso, except he's, like, is he better than I, I don't know. He's just a really good basketball player and a really important one for everything that they are doing and what they need so like Uh, pistons fans are definitely still mad about that as you're talking about jersey sales and all that that reminds me i did want to mention when you're talking about toronto's front court struggles earlier i just Mm -hmm. wanted to add do you think that they should hang an alex len jersey in that tampa bay arena as like a token of this season you know it's just a really stellar (laughs) stellar run for him you know what was it two or three weeks something like that it might be a fitting goodbye present to the city of tampa after this season um but anyway back on track alex crusoe is better than brown but i get where you're going with that yeah he was good too he was another one of these role players who was finding a lot of success in that golden state game 100 percent. yeah i mean you you like it's not even that he just spaces the floor. He's not like a particularly effective three-point shooter, but he knows what he is. And he, he cuts when his man is ball watching. He attacks the offensive glass. He hounds the opponent, the opposing like top ball handler, 94 feet. He's just like a really critical piece for them. And a really that's a really smart find for uh, by Sean Marks in that front office. I want to give them credit for that acquisition. But like... Like, Ben, it, it always comes back to me for the defense. I just, I understand that there is this growing uh, uh, wave of voices in the media that are suggesting that defense does not matter this season because of just how ridiculous uh, the top offenses are. And I mean, you look at it historically, and five of the six greatest offenses in NBA history. Uh, are playing right now this season which is no and that's what kills me of the all-star conversation too it's like oh my guy's got 25 points per game he's got to be an all-star no not this year everybody's averaging 25 points per game nobody's playing defense and the quality of play is definitely down in part because guys aren't in there uh, you know out there on the court every single night night to night and that definitely is a contributing factor so I tend to think offense is more important but when we get to the playoffs is your argument Mm. things are going to tighten up that's 100% it. Like in a seven, seven game series is not the regular season. It's just, it's a complete, it's almost a different sport. It just, it is like, if you ask, you know, I always go back to uh, this statement that Bob Myers said at one of the Sloan sports analytics conferences, where he said in the regular season, you have six feet of space to work with. If you're a role player in the playoffs, you have six inches. So, you have a, an opposing team, an opposing coaching staff that 
is like actually focusing in on what your strengths and weaknesses are. Can you drive left? Do you pull up when you drive right? Do you go all the way to the basket? Like they, everything is way more locked in. So I'm not saying that Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and James Harden won't have that same level of success in the playoffs. But when you do not, when you are unable to kind of turn it around on the defensive end and put the clamps on an opponent, and get beat by a team that is, you know, moving the ball better than you are or a team that um, just is gelling on both ends and is able to play better defense and is able to maybe, uh, you know, I, do, I just I don't think that Kyrie is going to shoot 50-40-90 in the playoffs. I don't think that uh, maybe he will because KD is crazy, but 70% of the rim, 50% from the mid-range and 40% from the three-point. Like that's a very – doing that over four rounds is just really difficult. And it's not like they're blowing teams out of the water right now either. They're like net rating since the Harden trade is uh, not superbly high. I don't believe – I haven't looked it up in a couple of days. But I know it's not like through the roof. So I, it just comes back to me – like defense and like can you string together stops when you need to I have not seen that at all from this team yet and I you know one game against the Golden State Warriors isn't going to sell me either way so I think their net rating is impacted because Kevin Durant cannot keep himself out of the contact protocol so that that would say there's Mm -hmm. some impact there for sure and they have also had other guys in and out here and there Um, I would also say in terms of the spacing aspect that Bob Myers quotes excellent I mean, the nice part about Brooklyn is they've got three guys who don't need six inches, right? Or don't need six feet or whatever it was. They just need one inch, right? Kyrie can get you a bucket. Uh, Harden can get you a bucket. And Kevin Durant can get you a bucket with your best defender, sometimes your two best defenders on him. That is going to create more space than normal for the other guys on the court. All those guys are unproven, you know, from Joe Harris right on down. Jeff Green, none of those guys have had any major postseason success that we're going to get super duper excited about and say, hey, they're definitely championship level players. Can but I, they're can not. I, can, I, can, can I cut you off for two seconds and just say that I'm glad that you are bypassing uh, Jeff Green's game seven, His game seven. in the Boston Garden yeah. uh, against the Boston Celtics? That was uh, uh, one of the worst days of my whole life, but um, continue. Well, yeah, I mean, that's more of a a degree of difficulty thing, right? Like game seven (laughs) against Boston, that's not an NBA finals atmosphere. You know what I mean? Uh, So it's just, I need to see more, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, But but, uh, my point here is that the role players are going to have the maximum space that they could ever hope for. If there was ever going to be a team that was pushing back on sort of that conventional wisdom, it's a team that has these three particular offensive threats. And on the defensive side, look, I'm definitely not going to say they're putting the clamps on anybody. That would be very insane because they don't. And they definitely played down the level of their competition a lot. But there were some clampy tendencies against Golden State. They were ramped up a little bit more. They were rolling around a little bit more there on the perimeter, forcing some turnovers, contesting shots, just looking a little bit more cohesive. (laughs) I don't know. It got me excited. I just wonder, you know, are they as far away from being like good enough to win a title on defense you know, is it closer than we might have thought? So you mentioned the Andre Drummond trade earlier. If they just can't get a trade done, which is possible for Cleveland, he accepts a buyout because, you know, I'm sure Cleveland would want to save some money. He might be willing to do that. Would Drummond make sense as a buyout guy for Brooklyn? If you're Brooklyn, do you even want to go down that route because you're clearly trying to play super fast and loose and you're not going to have a lot of touches for Andre Drummond? I mean, the one tough thing to do with this offense would be to watch him fumble passes, you know? It's like that would be just, you know, completely 
mucking up everything that's awesome about Brooklyn. But at the same time, they could use a little sturdiness on the back line and just fill some minutes and almost have him be like their Dwight Howard uh, from the Lakers run last year. Uh, maybe he would want something more than that, given that he needs to play for his next contract. And there might be a team out there that would look at him as a you know starting level guy at this point. So, or you know, we, we, kind of a featured starting level guy. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think about that as a possible landing spot for him? Are you thumbs up or thumbs down? I mean, Drummond intrigues me. Uh, I think the Drummond that's in my head might not be the Drummond that's in Drummond's head. Uh, so, <laughs> explain from that. that pr- well, like when I look at Andre Drummond, I'm I'm always just like, you don't need to handle the ball and run offense from the elbows and facilitate and throw these ridiculous like wrap around passes and shoot threes and get post touches and try to go coast to coast and it just. It, I could go on and on and on. Um, And he does all those things, and they're not great. Uh, When I look at Drummond, I'm like, you could be the best. Maybe you are the best rebounder of your generation. You should 100% focus on that on both ends. You should be in drop coverage like all the time, uh, practicing verticality. You are a humongous human being. You should set like rock hard screens for ball handlers to free them up and then dive to the basket as hard as you can. You should watch Rudy Gobert tape and how he plays and how he runs the floor, knowing that he is not going to get the ball basically ever, uh, (laughs) except when he's at the basket. So like there can be situations where, you know, you throw Drummond a bone for sure because he's a human being and guys just tend to play harder when they know that you know a a play here or there is going to get called for them but like his usage in Cleveland has been humongous um because and like way higher than it should be and I mean that's one of the reasons I think that they um are the Cleveland Cavaliers and when I look at this like from the big picture what really is amusing to me is that Jared Allen goes to Cleveland from Brooklyn and because the Cleveland Cavaliers are like, you know, Jared Allen's like better than Andre Drummond right now. And he's our center of the future. So we don't need Andre Drummond anymore. And then Brooklyn gets Drummond. That would just be funny to me because like they were were arguably a more well-rounded team before the Harden trade be- with like Karis LeVert and Jared Allen as their backup five or their starting five. So that's just like a funny little wrinkle here in all this. Just a quick clarifying note, Michael, was your opinion of what Andre Drummond should be versus who he is influenced at all by the idea that Cleveland, after empowering Drummond to be this elbow playmaker, has uh, racked up the league's worst offense? Uh, yeah, I think that that's a little bit of it for sure, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> no, I think that's, it's just to prove your point, right? He needs to yeah. stick to his lanes. I think he'll be much better served, um, in a Dwight Howard energy type, rebounding type, being a pest type role. It's exactly who he should be. He should want to do it on a contender. He spent so many pointless years in, in Detroit going absolutely nowhere, his impact is he's just not that guy. He is just not that guy. That's why he was traded for nothing last year. That's why there's going to be very limited interest for him this year. And that's why he's going to see his contract size uh, this summer come back to earth unless somebody makes a big time mistake and throws tons and tons of money at him, right? So, um, you know, simultaneously, while we're recording this, Michael, uh, Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN.com has reported that not only 
is Andre Drummond kind of getting shut down for this whole trade talk discussion, but also his former Detroit Pistons teammate, Blake Griffin, it sounds like will be held out of the lineup until they can sort of figure out what his next move is. Is there a trade available for Blake Griffin, or does this have to be a very extensive buyout situation where, you know, Blake's going to have to give some money out to get his freedom and to go play for a good team? How do you resolve this Blake Griffin situation, and why are they going to shut him down? I mean, he's been very rough so far this season. I think a lot of people have noticed that he hasn't had a single dunk all year, which just seems incomprehensible for the player he was earlier in his career. He's basically a three-point line to three-point line uh, shooter at this point, if if you want to put it that way, in terms of his impact. Uh, Is there a way out for Detroit here, or what are they doing? Oh, man. Uh the Blake Griffin situation is is pretty rough. Um, yeah, he just hasn't had uh, a very good season, uh, not moving well. Uh, he's only 31, which is, like, hard to believe, honestly. I, I, I You just look at him and you think that he's, like, in his late 30s, just kind of how long he's been in our, like, our collective conscience and um, – how great he used to be. Uh, you would like to think that he could have an impact, a positive impact on a championship contender. I don't know if that's possible anymore, um, especially when he's not hitting the three ball and he's not hitting the three ball, even though he takes a bunch of them. So I, I, I don't know, man. Like if it would be, it, it'll be really interesting if they do waive him, even though like I, I don't have the, let me, I'm trying to find the contract numbers. I know he's like still owe quite a bit of money so that's going to be really interesting so this year it's 36.5 next year he's got a player option for 38.9 oh yeah so you know he's definitely not going to get anything you know close to that this summer so the buyout's going to have to kind of reflect that if they did kind of pursue that direction I mean, maybe they're just trying to hope that they can construct a trade to dump him onto someone else and someone else eats that money next year I don't know how you really get out of that. I mean, it could just be a situation where they've just decided, look, man, like your body's not there. Just take some time and hope that you can kind of get into a better spot. But I mean, it does kind of look unsalvageable for him at this point, you know, and I, I hate to say that because there were times for Derrick Rose where it looked unsalvageable too. And he's you know come back to make himself like a valuable uh, role player in certain situation. Um, you know, is there a, a role for a Blake Griffin late career bench renaissance where he follows the Carmelo Anthony model, right? And he's only playing like 16 minutes a game and he gives you good, you know, 16, 18 minutes and that's it. Um, Could that be like a second chapter for him? I don't know. But I think this idea of him as full-time starter, impact guy, or, you know, major contributor is is basically done. Yeah, I mean, you you would like to think just if you were a glass half full type of person that like, a team that has cap space that isn't really pumped about that had cap space that isn't really pumped about who's available this summer would like take a flyer on him and try to trade for him. But it's just, it's really difficult to even manufacture those trades because of just how much salary Blake is making. So I, like, I don't even know how this would, would go down. And honestly, if you're Detroit, if you want to trade him, you'd probably have to attach something of value to him. <laughs> so I don't know. It's it's really tough to kind of envision where he would go, where he could be impactful. I miss watching him play, frankly. I He was like one of my favorite players uh, 
towards the end of his tenure with the Clippers, uh, I mean, like in 2015, he was one of the three best players alive, straight up. So it's pretty wild um, just how far he's fallen, and injuries are a huge factor there. And it's admirable how he's reshaped his game to to add that three-point shot. Um, As I said, they're not falling now, but he has developed a pretty respectable pull-up three that he's confident in, which is remarkable considering where he was like I don't even know five six seven years ago with that shot um no he did yeah, everything just, he could to extend his career yeah, but I just exactly. think that he's only postponing the inevitable I think with the knees unfortunately it's it's a really really sad case his first five years were unbelievable the last five have been uh much rougher I think we should probably leave it there Michael but I would like to solicit the open floor globe guys email us openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com is there a team out there that you think could actually make sense for a Blake Griffin trade, again, you're not going to be giving a lot back. Um, you're probably going to be getting a you know a draft asset in return. Uh, you know for your for your trouble if you're trading for him, given his salary uh, number. And then also, I think we should keep in mind like Troy Weaver's been a wild card, Michael. Like we never saw a lot of the stuff that he was doing coming. So maybe he's got a trick up his sleeve. If that's true, I would love to see what it looks like. Now I'm wondering, is there an Al Horford for Blake Griffin and picks trade, Michael? What do you think? Wow, sending Blake back home to Oklahoma City. I got to say, Michael, I kind of love this trade. I mean, you've got Sam Presti, former deputy Troy Weaver. You've got mutual interests and reasons to make this kind of thing happen. Did I just see the future again, Michael? Is this like the James Harden trade all over again? Do I get to call myself the Oracle of Oregon for the second time in four months? I think you peaked with the James Harden prediction personally. And it reminds me of, you know, like if I were you, I would have George Costanza my entire career and just walked out on top after I made that, that call. Uh, But, but you do you, and this is not a, this is not necessarily the worst one I've ever heard. Yeah. So here we are saying it in Blake Griffin might be done. And I think what you're trying to say is I might be done. So perfect. I'm glad we're all in great alignment. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Michael. I really appreciate that. All right, guys, you could be the judge. Let me know if you like my trade suggestion for Blake Griffin, or let me know if you've got a better one. Go ahead and email us openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. All right, guys, be sure to follow Michael on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver, on Twitter at Ben Golver. And please, please, please support us on Apple Podcasts. Find our page by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. All right, Michael, we'll come back later this week with a few more awesome questions that we didn't get to today, plus our all-star reserve selection. It's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to join in the Twitter mob who's angry at you and tell you how wrong you are, Michael, and I'm sure you'll dish it back the other way too. Until then, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card... 
right this way. It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 